Welcome back to Am I Famous Yet? Uh, my name is Ivan and this is chapter 33 entitled, Oh Yeah, You Blend. With apologies to Marissa Tomei, people seem to remember my face for some reason. I don't know why. Perhaps it's because I'm very tall and have a lot of tattoos. Maybe it's just my winning personality. Whatever the reason, I seem to have a knack for sticking in people's minds. This is arguably a good thing as a performer. Very often I get remembered by people that I don't remember at all. This is always uh, uh, strange when it happens, and it happens a lot. Other people have seen me on stage or on social media and assume that because they have seen me, I have also seen them. This is not necessarily true. I also meet and play with a lot of people in my travels. A lot. If I did one blues gig with you at a bar in New Jersey 20 years ago, there's a slight possibility that I don't remember the gig or you. This is nothing personal. I repress a lot of stuff to keep from going crazy. And, and I have a bad memory anyway, it, a lot of it just blends together after a while. As such, when I meet famous people whom I was briefly introduced to once upon a time, I assume, usually correctly, that they don't remember me. I don't expect them to, how could they? I have met Paul Schaefer, a longtime music director for David Letterman, a bunch of different times over a, period of, a long period of years. We've even had a few conversations, yet each time I meet him, I'm convinced that for him it's the very first time. I may be misreading his vibe, but I don't think so, and that's fine. There's absolutely no reason that he should know who I am, although uh, I am impressed by his ability to put someone of my stunning good look looks out of his memory so many times. I have no sense of feeling entitled that people should necessarily remember me, but there were a few times with other colleagues when I was shocked not to have been remembered. I mentioned earlier about a disco diva who fired me twice and didn't remember me the second time we met at all. Uh, I had even been her music director the first time around, uh, not just another faceless sideman. In her defense, our meetings took place 15 years apart. I was only her music director for about three months the first time I worked for her. Uh, on the 10-day tour of Brazil and uh, a one-nighter in Singapore, also she was quite distracted with a personal family tragedy in her life unfolding while we were on tour in Brazil. Still, it was a little amazing to have conducted seven concerts for her and to find out that she had no memory of me at all when I re-encountered re her years later. During that second period of employment of two years, there could have been many time to dust off the old memories, none were unearthed. Once while playing with Gloria Gaynor on a multi-act bill at Foxwoods Casino in Connecticut, I got called to play a one-off opening set also backing Sister Sledge. This version of Sister Sledge was the late Joni Sledge's band. Of the four original Sledge sisters, I think three of them had the rights to the name Sister Sledge and could tour under that banner any time. The youngest sister, Kathy, who sang lead on their biggest hits, tours separately and doesn't seem to be allowed to use the, the, sister in her, the name Sister in her marquee. This may possibly be her choice, but I doubt it. I'm sure it's a very long story with a lot of lawyers involved. That, as they say, is showbiz. Joni Sledge had a regular band based in Phoenix, Arizona. For some reason, the bass player and the keyboard player were unable to make this particular gig in Connecticut. So me and the keyboard player in the Divas band were asked to cover the Sledge set as well. Joni's band had no sheet music for us. All they had were some, some, some MP3s of live recordings. 
the keyboard player and I set about faithfully transcribing the parts on the original recordings verbatim and justifying the arrangements with the modern live versions. I even went so far as to bring my Music Man bass to the gig since that was the, the brand of bass played on the group's original hits, which were produced by Niall Rogers and Bernard Edwards from Chic. Suffice to say, we did our homework. We did way more work than we were probably being paid for because we wanted to respect the great songs of the mighty Sister Sledge. We Are Family is an anthem for the ages. We wanted to do a good job. And do a good job, we did. We had a brief rehearsal at Soundcheck that day. We nailed every song, including all their new arrangements. We killed on their show that night. We really felt good about it. We took pictures with them. We got thanked profusely for our efforts. We got paid and went home. Mission accomplished. Fast forward a mere six months. That Connecticut show was in the summer. The following New Year's Eve, we had another gig in Florida with the same stars on the bill. This time, however, the entire sledge band was there. Our services weren't required, which was fine. When we got to the venue, the sledge band was sound checking. All the cats in the band who were on the same summer show saw the keyboard player and me walk in and greeted us with joy and gusto. High fives all around. It's great to see you again, etc. When the Sledge singers arrived to check their mics, Joni and the same two backing singers she had with her in Connecticut, I said to them, hey, it's really nice to see you again. They just kind of blinked at me, obviously unaware of what the hell I was talking about. So I prompted her, remember when we played for you last summer at Foxwoods? No, they didn't. It was shocking. The whole band members remembered us on site. The singers had no clue as to who we were. We were all together on the same stage with band and singers for the same amount of time at the summer show, but there was some odd disconnect between the front and the back of the stage. But wait a minute, I hear you saying, maybe they were facing the audience as performers and not looking at the band. That's a fair point, but that's not what happened. We rehearsed their entire show with them at the soundcheck before the concert. They were looking straight at us for the entire rehearsal. And keep in mind that having a regular band uh, as they did, and not having sheet music to send us to send out to subs on their show means that they never have subs. We saved their bacon back in Connecticut by pulling a rabbit out of our asses. That alone should have left an impression on them. Apparently, it did not. I had a regular gig. Uh, I had a regular gig playing with a blues and funk band in a bar in the West Village in New York City, four nights a week, five hours a night for five and a half years. I'm no mathematician, but that's a long time. That gig alone covered probably over half of Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours that one is supposed to spend practicing one's craft in order to become accomplished in one's field. Let's just say I played at that bar a lot. It was a microscopically tiny stage with four or five people and their gear crammed onto it. We were surrounded on three sides by a bar with seated patrons right up in our faces. Fluids were exchanged every night just by nature of the extreme proximity. It was hot, sweaty, and loud in there. We played three long sets every night and passed the tip jar compulsively since about two-thirds of our evening's income would be generated that way. The club, the club paid us weekly, very weekly. Before the New York City smoke ban went into effect, there was also a constant fog bank in there like trench warfare was being raged. It waged. It was a historically registered building, so no new ventilation could be added without authorization from the Pope or something like that. Dive bars historically aren't known for expensive renovations beyond fashioning an upside-down umbrella to catch the ceiling leak where the water dripped on the patrons. This bar was no exception. It was a shithole. But it was our shithole. 
We had a lot of regular customers who were very colorful characters. There was a former burlesque star named Tanqueray who had built a new business teaching straight dudes from the suburbs how to cross-dress. She would bring in a new gaggle of clients almost every weekend. Some of them looked like little more than football players who really hadn't extended themselves beyond lipstick and wigs, but they were a fun bunch. There was also a predictable assortment of tourists, drunks, pimps, thieves, drug dealers, and hoi polloi who frequented the club. One night, a woman hurled a half-full beer bottle at my head, missing by inches and crashing onto the rear wall of the club as she stormed out. It came at me as I was looking the other way. Had her aim been just a little better, she would have creamed me. I can't imagine that my bass playing offended someone that much. It seemed completely unprovoked. I hadn't made eye contact with her at any point in the evening. I wasn't even aware of her until I heard the crash and saw her storm out. Chicken wire across the stage wouldn't have been completely out of character for that joint. One of our favorite regulars was the late avant-garde jazz pianist Cecil Taylor. He would hold court in the basement of the club for hours with an omnipresent Brandy Alexander in hand. There was also an occasional reaching for a house key to assist in dispensing minute qualities of quantities of Bolivian marching powder from a tiny Ziploc bag. Cecil loved to get loaded and loved our funk band. He was at the club at least once a week for years. He loved our lead singer, the late Frankie Paris, who specialized in a very rhythmic style of blues and funk singing. I always marveled at the dichotomy. Here was Cecil, a guy who was famous for helping to in invent an entire genre of atonal, arrhythmic music. But he adored shaking his ass to the complete opposite of that, simplistically tonal, maniacally rhythmic music. Cecil was fun. One week, he was playing an engagement not far away from us at the Blue Note Club in a duo format with drummer Elvin Jones. Our funk band all went down to see Cecil since he'd been to see us so many times. It was just a light, polite thing to do. Plus, we were interested to see what he really did for a living. He and Elvin descended the staircase of the club, both dressed completely in white. Cecil put a manila folder down on top of the piano and opened it to the first page. The folder was lying flat. We in the audience couldn't see what was on it. On some unspoken cue, he and Elvin launched into a tirade of sound that seemed to have no organization whatsoever. It was just an avalanche of apparently random notes. Occasionally, in the middle of a in the cacophony, Cecil would reach up and turn the page in his folder and continue with his pianistic onslaught. There was one chord voicing I remember specifically since it involved him slamming down both of his forearms onto the keyboard while simultaneously depressing every key within a three-foot range. It was both beautiful and terrible to behold. After 45 minutes of this nonstop performance, Cecil and Elvin both stopped at the same exact moment without any visible cue. They stood up, took a bow, and left the stage. It was great. I talked to Cecil about it the next time he was there at the funk club. I asked him what was on his charts in the folder. He said, you know, uh, some people think that I have a graph drawn on those pages. And I can assure you, it's not a graph. He never said what it was, but I know it wasn't a graph. In pure Sicilian fashion, he was off onto the next topic of conversation. He even propositioned me one night in the club when I was on stage, stage playing. He said, when am I going to taste those legs, boy? I explained to him that I was presently unavailable such, for such polygamy since I was spoken for, but uh, thanks anyway, no harm in asking. I've told you all this merely to illustrate that Cecil and I were fully acquainted. 
A few years after our regular nightclub gig ended, I happened to see Cecil holding court before a group of people uh, at a restaurant with tables on the sidewalk on 2nd Avenue in New York City. They were dining al frescos, as New Yorkers are oft want to do at the slightest provocation. Since I was only feet away from him on the street, I took the liberty of saying hello to him. He didn't remember who I was. I was a little hurt by that, but not entirely shocked, I suppose. He was always loaded when he was hanging out with us at the club. He seemed no less loaded at the sidewalk cafe that night. I reminded him of my former boss, Frankie Paris. He lucidly remembered, oh yes, the maestro. That's what he used to call Frankie. He even remembered the keyboard player in the band, though not exactly by name. That made sense, they were both pianists, but my name and face seemed to be lost to history to him. I suppose he would have slept with me and never called me again. I'll never know. Then there was a time I met the blues singer and guitar legend Robert Cray. I was playing in a band that was the opening act at a concert at his theater, at, at, at a concert of his at a theater in Connecticut. I was a fan and was excited to meet him. After his sound check, I got the chance to say hello. I gave him one of my pink custom printed guitar picks. I collect people's guitar picks whenever I can and give out mine, which have my website address printed on them. When I was growing up, I always thought that custom guitar picks were some sort of mark of rock stardom. When I became a professional musician, it dawned on me that anyone could have custom guitar picks. All it required was calling up the company that made them and sending them money. I had a little money, so I thought custom guitar picks for myself. When I handed mine to Robert Cray, he said, you already gave me one of these. What? When? In Berlin, he said. Oh shit, I had completely forgotten. The Sam Moore band had gone to see Eric Clapton play in Berlin when we had a night off one time a couple of years before. We got there after Eric's show had already started and had missed Robert's opening set, though he did sit in with Clapton during the night. After the show, People's Clapton, uh, Clapton's people were doing a runner, which means getting into waiting vans and immediately exiting the grounds. There was no after-show meet-and-greet. It's that old trick, Elvis has left the building. It's as much for crowd control as anything else, plus that amphitheater in Berlin didn't seem to have much of a backstage area. As the band guys were leaving, we kind of gave them all high fives like two sports teams congratulating, congratulating each other after the match, even though we hadn't played that evening. Somewhere in that exchange, I apparently had handed Robert Cray one of my picks. He had remembered. I hadn't. I'm not sure which is the greater insult, being told that I look like someone that I don't resemble or not being remembered at all. If it is indeed the latter, I probably owe Robert Cray an apology. Mm -hmm.